Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog talk radio. If you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, again, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog talk radio. Many African-American researchers struggle to break through the brick wall of slavery. This discussion will look at strategies used by Dr. Janice Loveless to identify her ancestors' slave owners through the use of military, land, probate, and court records. Dr. Loveless, a genealogist who primarily lectures and writes on health, genetics, research methodology, and her ethnic minority heritage lives and lectures primarily in the West. A licensed psychologist with an undergraduate degree in biology, she recently retired from 30 years of tenured college teaching in the social sciences, including women's studies and American cultural studies. Janice is a member of several genealogical groups, including the Association of Professional Genealogy and several local societies. So let me give a warm welcome to Dr. Janice Loveless to research at the National Archives and beyond for a discussion of Who Owns Solomon? A case study of 19th century African-American research. Okay, Janice, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bernice, for inviting me to talk about my process for finding ancestors and their slave owners. Well, Janice, as I mentioned earlier, many African-American researchers struggle to break through the brick wall of slavery. So just to get us started, why don't you share with us just a basic methodology or, as you said, process 
that you went through to attempt to break through this brick wall? Thanks. There are several steps that I think are useful for anyone looking for a slave owner. It takes a fair amount of time, but so far I've been successful in finding three owners. The first thing I do is to look at what's the oral history. What do I already know? Where did my family live? What name did they use? Is there any oral history about that name? Did they pick it or was it their slave owner? How did they come about using that name? And then once I've figured out what the history is that I've been told that's been passed down. And I start looking at records. One of the record sets that I find really helpful are the censuses. I start with the 1940 census and I work backwards. Now most of us will find our parents or our grandparents on the 1940 census. And that will tell us what state that family, the family members, were born in. By the time I get back to the 1900 census, I realize that most of the adults that are listed actually were born during slavery or right after it. And so if I look at what state they were born in, that gives me a really good clue about where they might have been enslaved. First of all, I have to look and say, was that a slave-owning state? Because if not, they were probably um, free blacks, and you may be looking for sort of the older manumission or freedom papers. I try to work all the way back to 1870. That's the first census after the Civil War, when the African-Americans were free and were counted as free people. It is wonderful if you can find your family in 1870. There have been a couple of lines where I can't get back that far, but in Solomon's case, I was able to get back to 1870. When you're looking at the 1870 census, look and see if there's anybody else who's got the same last name. Maybe black families, it could be relatives, it could be people off of the same plantation who aren't actually related. Then I also look and see who are the other names in the neighborhood. I make a copy of a couple of pages because I'm going to come back and look at those from time to time. As I find out more about my family, in the 1870s and the 1880s, I'm going to find more about their friends and their neighbors, and I'm going to look back at that, that census. Another set of records that I look at are the vital records. Yeah, I look at who um, got married, who, um, what births took place, and what deaths took place. Now, vital records are kind of hit and miss, particularly in the South, for um, the years up to the early 1900s. So it's not quite standardized like it is now. But the slave laws in the South prohibited 
the slaves to officially get married. But after emancipation through the Freedom Bureau, um, they were allowed to do a declaration of marriage. So you might find your ancestor doing a declaration of marriage saying they had been together for a certain number of years. If you do find a marriage license, most likely it's in the county home of the bride. Now, maybe the bride and groom lived in the same county. It's going to be there. Occasionally, people had enough money to travel somewhere else and get married. And if they lived close to the state line and another state was cheaper to get married, they might do that. I had some of my Kentucky relatives go to Indiana to get married because it was cheaper. If you think about ancestors who were marrying in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, they likely were born during slavery. On the marriage license, it often says the person's name, how old they were, and where they were born. It might even include their parents' names. Some states did that, some others did not. So it helps me to say where were they living in that 1880, 1870 time period. Again, another clue to finding a potential slave owner. In terms of birth records, it's really unusual to find a birth of a slave. Some counties did that, and you'll see the father listed as the slave owner. That does not mean that he was the biological father of the child. It simply means that he owned, he was in charge of this child. Again, birth records are hit and miss, um, but go look for them anyway. Many states started keeping their more consistent records in the 1900s. What I like about the birth records is it tells the mother's maiden name and sometimes her place of birth. Again, that can help you place the family at the right state, potentially the right county, for where they were during slavery period. So even a mother giving birth in the late 1800s, early 1900s, could have been born during slavery or right after. So again, you've got that clue to where the family was living. Death records are another vital record that can be helpful. Adult ancestors that were dying in the early 1900s most likely were born during the slavery period or slightly after emancipation. On the death record, a lot of times they will tell where the person was born. They might even give an idea of when the person was born. Frequently, the informant on a death certificate is a family member, the surviving spouse, maybe a child. And if the family member is the informant, they're pretty likely to know where the person was born in a general idea of when they were born. So 
what I like about the vital records. It helps me place my family at the right place at the right time. Another set of records we want to look at are military records. So did anybody that you know fight in the Civil War? So the U.S. Colored Troops had thousands of young men look at the enlistment records. I particularly have been successful with the descriptive list of colored volunteers, which I found through the National Archives, who summarized the volunteers from a certain time period and their age and their owner. A really quick way to find the name of the last owner before the person enlisted. But if there's no name on the enlistment papers, you might look at the pension record because sometimes when people were requesting their pensions, they had to give a lot of information. And one piece of information was when were you born, where were you born, and they also will say, and I was enslaved by, and give you a name of the owner. The Freedmen's Bureau are another set of good records. They only were around for about 10 years, but they're a good resource to help locate the family right after the war. The bank records can even identify former owners. Land records are another set of records that I like to look at. Did your ancestors own land after the Civil War? Five years, ten years? Who did they buy that land from? So check land deeds. Now, some of those are online. A lot of them are not. But it may be that they bought land from the former owner, that they're working land that they had always worked, and now they're buying it to work it for themselves. Okay. I also like to look at historic newspapers. So they're not necessarily record sets, but you can find a mention of your ancestor in the local newspaper. Sometimes towns with a larger black population may have actually had their own newspaper. Some of the papers have survived, some have not. But look, you know, look to see if you can find your ancestor's name. I've been really successful in finding some things that kind of fleshed out what their lives were like. Any other questions or anything that you would suggest? Well, you know, one of the things that I just want to clarify, uh, you mentioned the uh, Friedman uh, bureau records, and you also mm -hmm. mentioned the bank records, so that people yes. understand we are talking about two different set, sets of records, that they're not one and the same. True. True. The Freedmen Saving and Trust Bank um, right. was set up to help the slaves save some money, and that's where you'll find those bank records. 
right. they did, it didn't last long. It, it certainly didn't, but it, as you mentioned, provides you with a wealth of information, including the names of the siblings and uh, parents' names, and, and it's, it's just a wonderful set of records that you can look at. So you've pretty much given us a, a really uh, extensive outline of how one may proceed in looking at or attempting to find their enslaved ancestors. So why don't you now take us through your process of finding out who owned Solomon by telling us, first of all, who is Solomon? Well, Solomon is my great-great-grandfather. My great-grandmother, Mary Beam, and my grandmother, Emma Beam Crooms, um, kept a Bible. So it it was passed down, so I knew some names, and I knew um, that Mary Beam Crooms, my great-grandmother, and I knew the names of at least three of her siblings. And luckily, they were kind of unusual names. So she had two brothers, one named Hines and another named Ludwell. So it was kind of nice to have an unusual name because there just weren't a lot of people in the county with that same name. Now, Mary wasn't very helpful. You know, a lot of Marys, certainly a lot of Mary Beams. What I also knew is that my great-grandmother had been born in Nelson County, Kentucky, and that um, she identified her parents of record as Solomon and Charlotte Beam. Family history, our oral history, said that they had been enslaved by a family of Beams who were associated with the whiskey distilling in the area. Oh, that's interesting. It was interesting, and it was kind of exciting to go down that road to try to find Mm -hmm. if that was in fact, accurate. Mm-hmm. And oral history also told me, as I said earlier, that Hines and Ludwell had fought in the Civil War. So I thought, okay, here are a couple of things that I can look for. So I was able to track them back to the 1880 and the 1870 censuses. I found in 1880 Hines and Ludwell In 1870, I found Solomon and Charlotte, his wife, as well as Hines and Ludwell. Okay, so that suggested to me that Solomon was there in 1870, but he was not there in 1880. So one of the things I thought about is, you know, do I need to look for a death record? They were spotty, but maybe I would find one. All three families were there. They lived close to one another. But there were no white beam families living close by. So that kind of said to me, uh-oh, <laughs> did they move away? You know, did my family move away? Um, it's not that big of a county, but they could have moved to the other side of the county. 
But I began to build a tree for the white beam family. And there's a there's a lot of work out there that's been done on Jim Beam whiskey distilling family. So I didn't have to work quite as hard um, on that one. And I knew who the the founder was, and I knew the names of his um, many children. And then I was able to track each of those lines back through about 1865, 1870. And I looked to see if anybody owned slaves, if they owned the slaves that I was looking for. And so I began to compare the slave schedules for 1850 and 1860 for the Beam family members that I found. And I didn't find any matches. So there wasn't a family grouping that matched my ages and genders of my known family that were owned by Beams in this particular distilling family. So then I was stumped. And I make it sound like it probably went pretty quickly, but it went not so quickly. It took a couple of years for me to kind of get to the end of that road and say, I, you know, I'm lost. I don't know what to do now. So I went back and looked at some of my records. And one of the records was the declaration of marriage that Solomon and Charlotte had done at the end of the war. They actually did it in 1868. And it said Solomon Beam and Charlotte Dotson were getting married or wanted to declare that they had been together for 21 years and wanted to have their marriage uh, verified. And I thought, Dotson, where did that name come from? Who was this Dotson? Did they live on neighboring plantations? So I went back and looked at 1850. Uh, senses. I looked at 1860 senses. Could I find a beam next to a Dotson? Because Char- Charlotte and Solomon had several children, so they had to be somewhat close. And again, I, I just really wasn't very successful. So I went back to the 1870 census. Remember, I said, you know, keep that and so you can look and see who the families are. And I wanted to see were there any Dotsons who lived close to my Solomon Beam. And there was. There was a Warren Dotson in 1870 who was between Hines and Solomon Beam's places where they lived. So it was Solomon, and then it was Warren Dotson, and then it was Hines Beam. I thought, well, you know, I've gotten pretty good at figuring out who these families are. Let me track Warren Dotson, and let me find out who he is. So I began to look at the 1860 and the 1850 slave schedules. I started to figure out who his father was, had Warren inherited slaves, who were Warren's siblings, maybe some of them had inherited slaves. 
So did the whole process again that I had done for the Beam family. And I got lucky this time. In 1862, one of Warren's brothers, Jonathan Dotson, died. And in his estate settlement, he names all of the slaves and who inherited those slaves. And his list of, there were 20 slaves, his list of slaves included Solomon and Charlotte and Hines and Ludwell and Mary and Florence, all of the siblings that I knew as well as Solomon and Charlotte. Okay, This was a match for my family. Solomon and Charlotte went to one daughter. Hines went to another daughter. And he went to a daughter named Betty Foster. Ludwell went to the heirs of a deceased son. And the widow had remarried. And ironically, she had married Edward Beam. Oh, okay. (laughs) So now I know why Ludwell had used the Beam name. Uh, When he enlisted in the Civil War, he named his owner as Edward Beam, and he went in as Ludwell Beam. Hines, when he enlisted, enlisted as Hines Foster, and he named his owner as an R.G. Foster. When I looked at the census, R.G. Foster's wife was Betty. So now I know who the the last slave owners were. So I knew they were the children of Jonathan Dotson. Prior to his death, Jonathan Dotson had owned my family unit. So I said, let me look and see how long has he owned them? Did he own them in 1860? I looked at the slave schedule, looked at the ages of the slaves, because there are no names, at least on the Kentucky version. There are no names of slaves, simply their gender and their age. And the right ages and gender were there in 1860 for Jonathan Dotson. So I thought, okay. He had the family then. Let me look at 1850. And in 1850, this, you know, everybody's a little bit younger at that point, but they were still all there on the slave schedule. 1840, though, Jonathan Dotson um, did not appear to own the whole family. Now, remember, my great-grandmother and her siblings were all kind of born in the 1840s. At least that's the date they gave, and that seems to fit with the other things in their life. But in 1840, Jonathan Dotson only owned seven slaves, and he didn't own somebody who was the right age to be Solomon. So I thought, okay, 
he got Solomon somewhere between 1840 and 1850. How to find out how that happened. Well, I want you to hold that thought, hold that thought, because we're going to take a quick break and come back because I definitely want to hear just how did that happen. Okay? Thank you. Quick break. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast and can can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Now, you have been listening to Dr. Janice Loveless describe the strategies she used to identify her ancestors' slave owners through the use of military, land, probate, court records, census records, wills. I mean, she really looked at a lot of sources. Janice, this is sounding too easy. Okay. (laughs) Tell (laughs) us more. (laughs) Tell us more because obviously the the oral history was kind of your beginning to start your journey. Yeah, the oral history got me started. Um, And that was actually the easy part, because when I started, it was about 20 years ago, and there wasn't um, a lot that was online. But let me kind of finish telling you how I found when Jonathan got Solomon, and then let me tell you all the problems that went with it. Okay. Okay, so um, 1840... Jonathan Dotson appeared not to have a slave that fit the right age for Solomon, but he did by 1850. So I thought, well, maybe between 1840 and 1850, Jonathan inherited this slave. So I had looked at the family tree and worked out the family tree for Jonathan, and his father, William, had died in 1839. So by the time an estate would be settled, it probably was going to be after the 1840 census was taken. But 
his father did not leave him any slaves. His father did not have any slaves that were part of the estate. So that didn't work. So then I thought, well, maybe he got it from his wife's father when he died. Well, the wives, and Jonathan actually had two wives, the wives were sisters. And their father died in 1831. Well, if he had left the first wife a slave, she would have count that slave would have counted in the 1840 census. So, I did not find a will for Kaufman, but I did find some land division. So land deeds, property division. Um no slaves at any time were mentioned. So I figured, okay, he did not inherit Solomon. If he had inherited before before 1840, Solomon would have shown up in the 1840 census. So the next thing I thought, well, maybe he bought him, bought him from another neighbor, bought him at, at a slave sale. So I looked on the 1840 census and the 1850 census for some of the neighbors of Jonathan Dotson. I certainly looked at his family to see if any of them died during that time period, even if he didn't inherit He might have been able to buy a slave, none of the family. And then another genealogist said, have you looked at court records? Because, you know, maybe he bought it through somebody getting into trouble. Okay, let me go check the court records. And, in fact, Jonathan Dotson did show up in the court records. It showed that he bought a slave in 1844 through a sheriff sale. And he bought it from Beam. Okay, Jacob Beam, who was one of the sons of the founder of the distilling family, had died in 1843 um, owing more debt then he was able his estate was able to pay and so he had to sell off the estate had to sell off some of the slaves and one of the slaves was identified as a male named Solomon about age 30 which was just about the age i would expect my solomon to be and that slave was bought by Jonathan Dotson so now i know how Dotson got the slave, and I have a pretty good idea of why Solomon used the name Beam when he ended being a slave. So how easy was this? It was not easy at all. Um, When you talk about it, you make it sound a little bit easier, because otherwise (laughs) I'd be on the phone for hours telling you about it the the slave-owning families. It's like you're doing three, two, three, four family trees. We well, all I have a question for them. you, though. And, and this is a question coming out of the chat. What year was it that Solomon was acquired by uh, Jonathan? 1844. 
Okay, so Jacob Bean died, as you said, in 1843. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, I think the estate tried to work out some things, and finally um, a sheriff's auction of, you know, taking the property and selling it. Right. Well, now it looks like we have a question coming in on the line. And so uh, area code 504, do you have a question or a comment? Yes, ma'am, I have a question. I want to say good evening, enjoying the show as always. And one of the things uh, that uh, the the guest uh, highlights that I've learned in in my research, and I'd like both of you to comment on, on this, is that the whites who owned slaves in these given areas, like they were very close, like they were marrying into each other's families because I find that in my search uh, in genealogy here in Louisiana, along the river road and these big, all of these people constituted a type of class, constantly run into them. You know, when you're looking at one group of one slaveholding family, uh, all of the sons or the daughters may have married, the children of another slaveholding family, and you see that your ancestors are owned by these interlocking families. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, you know, as I look, as I did the family trees for uh, the Beams and the Dotsons, um, I did find interlocking families. Okay, they weren't really big communities when. The fathers had daughters to marry off. They tended to marry them off to people who lived next door, people who were uh, business partners. Um, They married them off to people who were in their same church. And sometimes sisters married brothers because there just weren't a lot of choices for them. And in the early to mid-1800s, people were not traveling that much looking for marriage partners. So, yes, there there is a lot of intermarrying within families and slaves that would then be given to a daughter when she got married or land and slaves being given to the son when he went out on his own and, and got married and started a family. So sometimes you track those through looking at um, property, through looking at the land books, the deed books. And we have a comment coming out of the chat room. This is Angela, and she's saying that, just as you said, people rarely went to another county to go courting. They married the children of neighbors and associates. Yes. You know, it it was hard to, to get around, and you just married who was kind of close by. Yes, but you brought up an interesting point, is that when you first thought that the Beam family owned your family, you constructed their family tree. So tell us about uh, looking at the white potential slave owner and just kind of reconstructing their family. How long did it take, and why would you recommend that you do that? Well, I'll take the the second part first. I recommend doing it so that you know who the family members are. Because if you don't know who the children are, 
you don't know the names of siblings, you're not going to recognize them when you see them in documents that might be the people who owned your slave uh, ancestor. So, for instance, when I was looking at the Dotsons, I started with Warren Dotson because he was the one who lived closest to Solomon and Hines in 1870. He did not end up being the slave owner, but his brother was. So it was like if I had not known who his brothers and siblings were, I just wouldn't have been able to recognize it. And I would have been, again, spinning my wheels, looking, and if I had said only Warren, and I didn't find any slaves that fit, I'd go like, okay, I don't know what to do now. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. built the tree, like, who's the father? Who was the grandfather? Who were the siblings of the grandparents? Who were the siblings of um, the father? Who was the mother's family? Because women brought slaves with them from their family. Again, the their father might have given them a slave. They might have inherited slaves. So you have to know who all those names were. And it's the same work you do on building a tree. You look at marriages. You look at deaths. You look at um, children being born. You look at the censuses, particularly from 1850 forward, um, to get those names. So you want to know who's in this family. And, Janice, at what time or what period in your research did you stop looking at your ancestors and you decided, okay, let me just focus totally on the the white families in the community? Well, once I had gathered as much as I could about my family, so, you know, up until 1870, You know, going back to 1870, I could get information on them. And then you hit that slavery wall in 1865. It's like, okay, I've gone as far as I can. Who might be the owner? And so for me, I've been working on owners for about 10 years, trying to find out who are the owners. As I said, I started kind of down the the almost dead-end road, um, of the beams, mm-hmm. and really, I probably just I didn't go back far enough because I didn't know that uh, Jacob uh, had owned Solomon. Because there was even after I found out that the estate sold him, I couldn't find when Jacob Beam had gotten Solomon. So when Solomon was sold in the 1840s, he was. He was a man. Like, how long did he live with the Beams? Did he live with some other Beam family? Did they buy him from somewhere? Did they inherit him? And that's my next step. I still don't know that answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it, it took a while to kind of build those trees and then figure out who are these people. When I looked at Hines and Ludwell's, Um, enlistment papers and I saw that Hines was owned by a foster I was like who is that 
So, again, it was going back and trying to figure out who is this foster so that I, you know, it didn't mean anything to me until I found a, a marriage for Betty Dotson and R.G. Foster. And it's like, oh, mm-hmm. we're back to Dotson. Okay. It's a long and difficult process. Yes, it is. It is a long and difficult process. But more material is is online now than it used to be. And so there are more things that you can find online. Um, But I say go to the site. If you can, go to that county. Look at those records. It's amazing how much more is at the county level than you think there is. And there certainly was for me. And when you can get the land records and the marriage records and the probate all in one building, it it makes it a lot easier than sending away for something. Yes, and then you you can also just concentrate your research effort when you're there. You know where you're going. You do. You know where you're going. You know who you want to look at. And you you have some negative research, too. I looked for uh, Kaufman, so Jonathan Dotson's wife's family. And I looked and looked and looked, and I actually had another genealogist who was helping me to look uh, for that. And nothing. So I could say, you know, there is no will. There is no, I, there was no marriage. Um, you know, these are the things I've looked for, couldn't find it. But there were other things that I could find. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, Shannon Christmas has made a point. He's just saying that we need more access to digitized Slave deed records. Yes. Well, I actually, um, you know, was hoping that the Beam Company would have saved some of their records, some of their business records, because you know, owning slaves was part of their business in the 1850s and the 1860s. Um, mm-hmm. But when I inquired of that, they said they did not have any of those records. Um, how wonderful it would have been if they had, but they didn't. Right, right. Well, did you go to uh, any of the universities to see if they had any private papers? Um, in the University of Kentucky, um, you know, I've I've looked. I've looked at archives. Uh, I've not found any from my family. Um, there certainly are some others and some other research I've done that I have been able to find information in the archives, but not in, in my particular search uh, for my family. But I would look if if I had another line that I was researching, that would be one of the things I would look for. And the mm-hmm. bigger the plantation, Kentucky didn't tend to have really big plantations, but if you had a big plantation, you're more likely to have business records. Mm-hmm. Now, there's also a question, what about insurance records? I have not looked at insurance records. I'm not even sure I know where to start looking for insurance records because I don't know who insured them. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And this is something that you might even find in their private papers. You never know. Mhm, mhm, mhm. They also mentioning uh, courthouse minutes. Did you find any any courthouse minutes where uh, family members went into court, maybe even to contest the the wills? Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and the court the court minutes, um, I find are really helpful. And some courthouses, some counties actually have those um, indexed in a way that it's um, very easy to find the family member. I did not find any on on Dotson until after the Civil War, Mm -hmm. actually until his wife, Jonathan's wife, Sevilla, died. Um, And then there were a number of court records. I probably have a stack of about two inches of of paper. Um, mm-hmm. Of records contesting her her estate settlement, um, but by yes, that time war was over. Was... Mm-hmm. Well, we have another question coming out of the uh, chat room. Have you found Solomon in any records prior to 1844? No. Um, I'm looking, but I haven't found it yet. And again, even when you're researching uh, white families, the records pre-1850 are just not as uh, complete. You have places where records, a lot of records weren't kept um, and where records were destroyed, either by fire, by flood, by other things. Um, I've been lucky in Nelson County that most of the records I wanted um, were available but I have not found who owned Solomon before Jacob Beam did. Mm-hmm. If anybody can help with that, please let me know. <laughs> right. Well, there's a, a question also. Are there any records that might reflect the names of Solomon's parents? Have you discovered any anything like that? I have not. I wish, um, but I have not. Now, you I know not. Charlotte. His wife, Mm -hmm. um, she died in 1877, and on the death register, it actually names her mother as Nancy Dotson. And when I looked at the slave distribution for Jonathan Dotson, there was the old lady Nancy um, who went to the widow, and she was valued at zero because she was so old. I think she was Mm -hmm. about... 60 at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, Nancy Dotson was Charlotte Dotson Beam's mother. So I know that, um, but I don't know parents, any parent names for Solomon. So it, it did not appear in, in, that any other slaves came with him when Jonathan bought him. So do you feel that your your search for who owns Solomon is complete, or are you still uh, looking for Solomon before 1844? I am still looking for Solomon pre-1844. I want to know how long did Jacob own Solomon, and if he purchased him or inherited him, I want to know 
you know, where was what where was Solomon before he came to Jacob Beam? Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well, he was not that much younger. Solomon yeah. was not that much younger um, than Jacob Beam was. And so it's not like Jacob had bought him, you know, as with Jacob being an adult, had bought Solomon as a child. So he had to have gotten him from somewhere. From somewhere. Oh, yes. So from the time you started with your oral history to the time you found Solomon, uh, uh, tell us what was the entire research time period for you? About 20 years. It took 20 years. Yes. So listeners, as you can hear, it's not that that easy and it's not that quick. (laughs) It's not that quick. (laughs) And, you know, some of the records I, I didn't know to look for when I first started. Some of the records weren't as easily available. When I first rode away for to uh, the National Archives for Heinz Beam, his service records, I got a paper back that said we don't have a Heinz Beam. Well, no, they didn't because Heinz enlisted as Heinz Foster. And whenever he would do try to get um something from the veterans he would say you know i'm heinz foster okay so once i knew that which was you know 10 years later <laughs> then i could go back <laughs> and get that and and begin to feel fill in the pieces little by little i'd say the yeah. last 5 years have gone the quickest um Again, more things available, um, and the the dots and piece just started all fitting together. Yes, and of course, there's a comment that almost uh, ditto what you just said. The journey never really ends. As it more records really- are available, another opportunity to examine another record emerges, and so that's pretty much where you are right now. Well. We're getting close to the end of the show. And do you have any parting words you would like to share with the listeners? Well, I would say, you know, the search is can be long and difficult, but it is definitely worth it. Um, more material is coming available, and we have the, the ability to do it, but I think it gave me a better understanding of my family. And there was the moment when I saw the slave distribution document that just breath. I thought, these are my people, and they're being divided up. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. The things you read about, it suddenly becomes very real. So history becomes real. Mm -hmm. And the more you do it, you know, the closer I feel to those ancestors. Yes, yes. And, you know, one of the things you can talk about slavery, but you're right. Until you see it and until you see your ancestors, uh, then you really, you know, reality hits you. This is real. This is real. Real. This happened to my people. That's right. That's that's your family. That's your family. But, you know, just sharing with us your journey, and I'm hoping that the listeners, that you're inspired 
to continue your search. Don't give up. Don't give up. Follow some of the strategies that uh, Dr. Loveless has uh, outlined, and perhaps you will eventually find your ancestor who owned your ancestor. And this is where the journey is definitely worth all of the time and energy that you put in to reclaim your ancestors. Absolutely. So I want to just thank you so much for coming on tonight. And I want everybody to please remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. Also, remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond, Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Dr. Loveless. Thank you so Good much night. for coming on tonight. Thank you for including me.